morning. Um, one other thing to comment on um, our year of biblical literacy, um, and I forgot to mention this last week, but Max did mention it. Um, we probably have many neighbors, friends, family members who are not Christian and who are skeptical about the Bible. Um, I said this last week, but uh, we have a biblically illiterate culture using the Bible to critique a biblically illiterate church. And so this is a wonderful opportunity to bring friends, skeptics, family out, because we are going to be discussing the dark side of the Bible, the ugliness of the Bible. We're going to be discussing those hard things and working through them so that we do have answers, so we have a good answer uh, for the story of God and what it really means. So I uh, just wanted to highlight that as well. Um, so this morning, we are not doing your biblical literacy. We're doing something completely different. So if you have a Bible, Ephesians 3, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, Paul the Apostle says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, in order that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, in order that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now, if it's your first time joining us this morning, Welcome, and good news, you are here at the start of a series, so it's a great time to be here. Now, our series is on the Holy Spirit, um, and specifically, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian, the church. Obviously, um, a comprehensive teaching of the Holy Spirit would probably take us a lifetime, so that is not what we will be doing this morning. Um, But we have a focus that we are uh, wanting to get at. So now, the Bible teaches, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is not just God's will or his active force in the world, but is in fact God himself. He shares all the divine attributes of the Father and the Son, And he plays a unique role in all the works of God, in creation, in sustaining the world, in redemption, in restoration, and so on and so forth. And as I said, we don't have time to do an extensive study on the Holy Spirit. But what I want to look at this morning, what we're going to look at for the next couple weeks is, what is the work or ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian? Or another way people often put it, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? So what does, it mean to, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? What do you think of when you hear those words, spirit-filled? 
oh, that guy is spirit-filled. Or, man, we were spirit-filled. They were spirit-filled. You know, we we have this thing, everybody knows this term. uh, If you're a Christian, you do. Christianese, right? We have these, like, terms and this language that we use. And so sometimes when we talk to people that aren't Christians or aren't familiar with the Bible, they have no idea what we're talking about. It is a foreign language. And sometimes, I, I, the, the, the Bible uses this idea of being filled with the Spirit, though it doesn't necessarily use this term Spirit-filled, but we're going to use it. So here we go, right? So Spirit-filled, I have often wondered myself, and I'm going to take you on a little journey, a little biography. Uh, I have read many books on the subject of being Spirit-filled uh, from authors like Jim Cimbala, who was very popular back in the 90s, who wrote a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, among many. Excellent book. Uh, a man named Samuel Chadwick wrote a book called The Way to Pentecost. Samuel Chadwick uh, believed that there was a second experience of the Holy Spirit, that you could repeat the day of Pentecost and experience tongues of fire and a powerful um, experiential thing with the Holy Spirit. I don't know how else to put that right now. I've read accounts of Jonathan Edwards, who was actually Reformed, right, Calvinist, uh, speaking about how he would walk in the forest. He would dismount his horse. He would walk through the forest, and he would meet with God, the Holy Spirit, there in the forest and have these incredible experiences where he would be just on his face and be in tears and I've read about the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley wrote some of our most famous hymns, the ones we love so much. Wesley talks about how his heart was strangely warmed by the Holy Spirit at Aldersgate Street. And for the first time, he felt that he truly was loved by God. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist from Chicago, talks about how he experienced the Holy Spirit one night while he was in New York City so heavily that he had to duck into a store doorway because it was so powerful, so heavy upon him. He had to duck in there and lean against the window until it passed. I've listened to preachers and spiritual leaders talk about revivals that they were a part of, movings of the Spirit that they see and experience that left me feeling that I have never known the Holy Spirit or was missing the secret power of the Spirit. So I sought it. I sought it out fervently. I attended prayer meetings and worship services, what we would call in my background afterglows. I don't know if anybody in this uh, congregation is familiar with this, but what we would do is we dim the lights after church. Usually it was evening. We dim the lights, right? Maybe we'd light candles or something like that. And we'd sing soft, sweet songs about the Holy Spirit's refreshment coming. And then we'd sit quietly and wait for a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, a prophecy, a tongue, and see what would happen. And sometimes things would happen. And other times, nothing would happen. And usually, one person would be speaking in tongues, and they wouldn't stop speaking in tongues. And then everybody would just be upset, and everybody would leave, right? It wasn't always like that, but you know, times of we, we set aside time to wait on the Spirit and set aside time to practice spiritual gifts. I've been prayed for, anointed with oil, prophesied over. I've been prayed for in tongues, and the list goes on. I wanted this experience so badly. If God had more for me, I wanted it and still want it. I want to be Spirit-filled, but finally, I think I just burned out on the whole idea and relegated it to spiritual hype and emotionalism. From there, I spent a number of years looking more at the person and character of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit really 
about who is he? What, what is his character in scripture? What are his actions? What do we see him doing? I wanted to know doctrine, so I studied about regeneration, which is another word for being reborn or new birth. I wanted to know what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit in his work in the life of the Christian. And I came to believe that there isn't a second blessing, a secret baptism or Pentecostal moment for the Christian per se. Put a little asterisk next to that. And I came to believe more in the development of the fruit of the Spirit rather than the gifts of the Spirit. The development of Christ-like character in the spiritual disciplines. You've probably noticed this in my preaching. Uh, The Spirit's work, I began to believe, was to bring about a life of holiness and victory over sin. One of my favorite quotes during this time was Martin Luther's, I would rather be obedient than do miracles. Think about that for a moment. I would rather be obedient than do miracles. Now, I believe that that's actually a correct understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit still, a life marked by holiness, kindness, and obedience. But at the time, I used this quote kind of more as like, you know, firepower against maybe who I considered uh, charismatics and a way to look down on and dismiss what I considered spiritual hype, emotionalism, and ecstatic experiences. But secretly, I felt that I was missing out. But as I read through the book of Acts, We see Peter and the early church and Luke records that though they were filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost in a powerful, um, cathartic, experiential scene, there are times where they are refilled. Peter stands before the Sanhedrin and before he speaks it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. I do not think that Luke is like, oh, by the way, Remember Acts chapter 2. Okay, let's go back into the story, right? Like he's telling us Peter's being refilled with the Spirit. And and we have this multiple times happening in the book of Acts that the church is filled again. And then they have a new kind of boldness, a, a, a new power and confidence in the gospel and in the work that God has called them to. So we see a refilling with the Spirit. Not just once or twice, not just a second Pentecost, but it's an ongoing thing. And you know what? It makes me wonder. It makes me wonder. What's that? I read passages in the Bible like Ephesians 3 that we just read about, about God granting to us strength with power through his spirit in the inner person that Christ would dwell in us, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, comprehending to an even greater degree the love of Christ, being filled with this line, all the fullness of God. And I wonder, what is this? to be filled with all the fullness of God, to experience the height and depth and width and length of the love of Christ. What is that? I wonder. I read about the church in Corinth, though it had so many problems. When gathered together, each person had a word of encouragement, a prophecy, a tongue, a spiritual gifting or mission that they were on. Uh, They believed that they came to church, and when they came to church, they had a job to do. A spiritual gift to impart in order to encourage the church, in order to glorify God. And I wonder, I wonder at passages like this. The spiritual gifts were so active in the church at Corinth that Paul has to comment on them and say, hey, you have to organize this. It's out of hand. There's so much happening, it's out of hand. And I wonder, what is that? 
you know what, these passages make me wonder, both in my notes. Uh, am I missing something? Are we missing something? Uh, am I, are we following Jesus, fighting sin and temptation, seeking to build up and strengthen the church and spread the glorious gospel with our spiritual hands tied behind our backs? Is there more? I think most Christians believe in the Holy Spirit, at least I hope so, and spiritual gifts, yet live as though there is no Holy Spirit and there is no such thing as spiritual gifting and power from the Spirit. But the Bible talks again and again about the Spirit of God and his work in the life of the Christian, his empowering, his leading, his convicting, uh, his speaking, and his using, and sometimes that's done in a very dramatic way, while other times it happens in the most mundane and normal of circumstances. But since the Bible speaks this way, I believe that we should seek to practice that life of the Spirit. To make sure that we are taking full advantage of the work of the cross of Jesus and the life-giving Holy Spirit that we have been gifted as sons and daughters of God. I think that we should seek, as Paul says, to be filled with all the fullness of God. I think that is a noble and right quest of the Christian. So my first, or I guess my second question, so what does it mean to be spirit-filled? Second question would be, are you open to that refuge? Are we open to that, that there might be more to the Christian life than just Bible reading, Sunday gathering, prayer here and there, maybe a getting together to discuss the Bible. Is there more? Are you open to the fact that you are not fully developed and are still in process? Now let me just kind of talk about the other side here for a minute. Some people might see this desire for more as an underappreciation of the work of the cross. And if you have been in a church that was marked by charismania rather than charismata, I understand where you're coming from. I have experienced very strange things myself, and it left me very afraid, very worried, um, unsettled. So I think sometimes we like, we go to the other side and we think, oh, you're actually underappreciating Calvary. You're underappreciating the work of the cross. It, didn't Jesus bleed and die enough? Right? But I think rather, according to scripture, what we're talking about is not to undermine Calvary, but it is to fully excavate, appreciate, and assimilate the work of the cross. And that is going to be my argument this morning. It seems to me that scripture fully supports God's people living with a holy discontentment. Paul talks about that. He presses forward. He moves on. He wants more he forgets those things that are behind. He, he presses towards the prize. He wants to experience all the fullness of God. Paul lived with a holy discontentment. He talks in Ephesians 3 about a desire to see God do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And that's not talking about the cross. It's talking about the work of sanctification, the work of the Spirit in our lives. William Carey, who is called the father of modern missions, is known for saying this, Expect great things from God and attempt great things for him. And I think the problem is that we live in an era where we do not expect great things from God. I am a pessimist by nature. 
I have many times just been like, this is just my lot in life. Life is hard. You go through stuff, then you die, and God's going to make all things new one day. Just how it is. And, and yet, again, I come back to Scripture, and it says, but, but then again, God breaks in, and God does exceedingly and abundantly. We ask, and God pours out. God surprises us with grace. That is the God of the Bible. He surprises us with his mercy. He surprises us with compassion. You know, we talk about how bad things are in the culture right now, and things are bad. But if you just flash back a little bit and think about what was going on in the 1960s with the president being murdered, with, uh, you know, Martin Luther King being murdered, Bobby Kennedy being murdered, riots in L.A. and Chicago, and shooting on campuses by the armored guard. I mean, stuff was in absolute turmoil. And yet, I am part of a tribe of, of Christianity that saw God do a unique work in those days. God, saw God turn the tide and do what we would probably call today a revival, a renewal, and draw people back to himself. And see, I see that again and again in scripture and again and again in history, and I desire that. Though I am a pessimist, and sometimes I think, yeah, it's probably not gonna happen, I still want it to. And I think that the Bible tells me that I should expect God to do what he often does, which is show mercy. That was a rabbit trail, but I'm coming back right now. So, now... For those of you like me, one more thing, whenever you hear language like more or not enough, when you hear this starting to be used in reference to the spirit and spiritual gifts, you start pulling out your discernment card, right, looking for the nearest exit. I know the conversation can quickly spiral and get out of control, so let me set your hearts and minds at ease. Maybe you've heard of weird things being done in the name of the Holy Spirit. Maybe not so much today, but when I was a kid, barking, uncontrollable laughter, wetting yourself, doing laps around the auditorium, gold dust falling from the ceiling, angels peeking out from behind the pulpit. If that's what you're expecting, if that's where you think refuge is going, rest assured, rest assured. This pastor is more like a Reformed Baptist or a charismatic with two seatbelts, a shoulder harness, and an airbag. Okay? Yeah, that's where... (laughs) So... And yet, I do think, I do think specifically refuge that we need to be pushed into a greater experience and practice of life in the spirit. Maybe we need to unbuckle one of those seatbelts, disarm the airbag, and actually say, hey God, I'm going to step out and, and, and ask to experience your spirit in a new way, in a different way than I'm used to, and, and what makes me maybe uncomfortable. So, it seems to me That is a long intro, and that's most of my sermon. It seems to me, though, here we go, into the sermon, the best place to start is with Jesus himself. And we're Bible people here at Refuge, and and we are Jesus followers. And so let's look at the Bible. Let's look at what the Bible says about the Spirit, and specifically the Spirit-filled Jesus. Um, We're told in John's Gospel, John 3, 34, if you want to write that down or look it up, We're told that Jesus was given the Holy Spirit without measure. Now, this is an incredible thing because when you look through the narrative of Scripture, there are many times where the Holy Spirit, uh, I think it's Saul, uh, the first king of Israel, talks, the language that's used is that the Holy Spirit rushed 
upon Saul. It came upon him, almost kind of like the same language, uh, Acts 2, a mighty rushing wind just comes upon him and he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. But never in scripture do we hear language like this, that one person is given the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness without measure. So in other words, Jesus was completely spirit-filled. And the Holy Spirit is all over the life of Jesus. And this is quite incredible because at this point in the nation of Israel's history, there has been 400 years of silence from Yahweh. There's been no prophecy, no prophet, no miracles that we know of, just silence. And then suddenly there is a flood of activity from the Holy Spirit. If you want a little homework assignment, do this. This is what I did this week. I walked through Luke uh, the account of John the Baptist and his birth and Jesus' birth and all the way up in, into Luke, I think, chapter 5. And it's like the Holy Spirit is just mentioned again and again and again and again and again. So what I'm saying is there's silence and then all of a sudden there is a flood of activity of the Holy Spirit happening when Jesus is about to come on the scene. So let's look at it, right? First, there is an appearance of an angel, his name's Gabriel, to a righteous and faithful couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Even though she's old, right, and, and barren, she can't have any kids, she's never been able to have kids, they're gonna have a baby. It's kind of like another story maybe you've heard before, Abraham and Sarah, right? They're gonna have a baby, and this baby will grow to be great before the Lord. He will be Filled with the Holy Spirit. You guessed it, people. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from his mother's womb. That's weird. We call this guy John the Baptist. Okay, so the next we have Mary. She's a young virgin girl from Nazareth. And she's told that she's going to give birth to God's anointed Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. And when she asks, uh, how's that going to happen? Because I've never had sex before. I'm a virgin. Like, it just... I'm not sure how this is going to take place. The angel replies like this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So we have something totally unique that has never happened in the narrative of Scripture or in the history of the world, is that someone is impregnated by the Holy Spirit, we have an incredible work of the Spirit where the Spirit and flesh will mix together in Mary's womb and the Christ will be born, God's anointed Savior, the Son of God. That's in Luke 1.35. Then from there, the Holy Spirit is filling all sorts of people. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, remember that story? Mary comes to visit Elizabeth to tell her the news about the Messiah. And when she enters the door and says, Elizabeth, it says that the baby inside of her jumps at the sound of Mary's voice. And it talks about how at that moment, Elizabeth is filled with the baby, or excuse me, filled with the baby, filled with the spirit, spirit baby, and the baby in her womb is also filled with the spirit. This is incredible stuff, right? From there, Zechariah, John the Baptist, father, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he speaks a prophecy concerning John and the work that John will do to be the one who will prepare the way of God's Messiah and that God is about to do the work of redemption and restoration that he's always promised to do, delivering us from our sins, making all things new. After that, we have Jesus being born. We have him going to the temple, and we're told that a man named Simeon is spoken to by the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit into the temple. 
because he was told that he would see the Christ before he died. And he gives this incredible prophecy about Jesus, about how he's going to be for the rising and falling of many in Israel and how a sword is going to pierce through the heart of Mary. There's going to be heartache and tragedy that will come from this child. An incredible prophecy given by the Spirit through Simeon. Then, of course, we come to Jesus himself. I already mentioned this. His conception and birth is a work of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.18. Then at 30 years old, he goes out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. And instead of a normal baptism, right, being cleansed from his sin, repenting, we're told that something different happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus in bodily form, like a dove. And the spirit remains on him, John 1, 32. And a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now in chapter four of Luke, in verse one, this is directly after the baptism. It says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So where we're at now, Jesus is born by the Spirit. There's all this activity of the Spirit surrounding his birth. When he's baptized, it says the fullness of the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And then, really weird, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, leads him to be tempted by the devil. And it says that Jesus, under the power of the Holy Spirit, not the power of food, not human strength of any sort, overcomes the temptation. He beats the devil at his game. And we're told that he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then, and this is my last reference and then we'll move on. Jesus walks into a synagogue on the Sabbath. It sounds like a joke, doesn't it? I have to think of that all week long. Jesus walks into a synagogue on the Sabbath. He's given the scroll of Isaiah and reads this passage, telling everybody, hey, this is written about me. Listen to this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim this is the year of God's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And everybody in the synagogue is staring at him, it says. And he said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The one who has the spirit is here to do the work of God, to do the work of redemption. As the narrative carries on, we're told that Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. That's from Luke 10, 21. He performed his ministry in the power of the spirit. Acts 2, 22 was anointed with the spirit, which we already looked at. Acts 10, 28. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus offered himself to God. His sacrificial death was by the Spirit. That's Hebrews 9, 28. This was a work that the Spirit orchestrated, guided Jesus' sacrificial death to the Father. And of course, he was resurrected to life by the Spirit according to Romans 8.11 and 1 Peter 3.18. Jesus' life is the spirit-filled life par excellence. Now, hold on a minute. Doesn't Jesus kind of get a pass? 
I mean, it's a little unfair, right? He's God incarnate. So being the spirit-filled is just kind of a bonus, an add-on, an appendices, right? Like, not only can he walk on water, people, but he is spirit-filled. Wow, right? And I think that's often how we view it. Well, well, of course he's spirit-filled. He's Jesus. But I think this thinking is incorrect. Have you ever sat and thought through not what Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, but what it means? Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Now, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he's talking to them about how they should be humble, how they should serve others, how this is what it means to follow Jesus in everyday activity. And in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then, of course, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. What does Philippians 2, 5 through 11 mean? Well, Paul tells us that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself. And the word in Greek means to strip, to empty, to deprive, to render to no effect. The pre-existent divine son of his own volition emptied himself and took to himself the form of a servant. His divinity was not lost, but it was not exercised, is what Paul is telling us. Jesus took upon himself the form of fallen human nature, mortal and corruptible, we're told, but not with sin. And he lived his life directed and dependent on the spirit. The word becomes human and exercise all of his power through the spirit, not on his own. He decided not to make use of his divine attributes independently, but experience, excuse me, what it would mean to be truly human. Now think about that for a moment. Well, what about all the crazy miracles that Jesus does? Isn't that showing that he is God? Well, yes and no. It is Jesus showing that he is God in the sense of the fact that all the works that he do line up with Yahweh's works. He feeds the people with manna from heaven in the wilderness, just like God gave manna from heaven in the wilderness. He, he, he walks on the waters just as God led his people through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus, all the works that he's doing are in line, are in concert with Yahweh. He is doing what the scripture said Yahweh's servant would do. And yet I believe scripture supports that the power behind the miracles comes from Jesus being the true and perfect humanity rather than his divinity. Well, that's a stretch. No, it's not. Hebrews tells us that this is exactly what is happening in the life of Jesus. 
The author of Hebrews is talking about how unique and wonderful and beautiful Jesus is, uh, incomparable. And he says, listen, when God does redemption, he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to men. Have you never read what Psalm 8 says? And Psalm 8 talks about man and how God has made man the crown of creation and he has set everything under him. He has subdued all things and put them under his feet. And the writer says, now we don't see this happening with humanity right now, with mankind right now. Things are in turmoil. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the purpose of suffering and death, that he takes upon his humanity, that he might be our example, that he might be our forerunner and lead us into all the promises of God. But let me just paint for you what the writer's saying. Everything that Jesus does in his life, all the miracles are done by the power of the Spirit on the human Jesus. It is not Jesus being like, divinity. No, I'm just a man. He is fully man but he has the spirit without measure. Fully God, fully man, just in case you're like, I'm out of here, this is like Arian, you know, apostasy, I can't even think of words this morning. It's fun when you're, guest speak, or when you're speaking publicly, right? You can't think of words. So for a spirit, another spiritual exercise, if you want, read Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2 and think through the life and miracles of Jesus. Um, I, I really believe this, and I think that this is even more powerful. When you see Jesus bringing all the fish into the nets of Peter, James, and John, he's doing that as the true human. When he walks on water, he is doing it as the true human. He is showing us what it looks like when creation is subdued to humanity. It's incredible. It's incredible who Jesus is, what he became for us. I think we blow Jesus' divinity out of proportion when we read through the Gospels. Jesus is fully divine, yes, and yet fully human. He experienced every aspect of what it means to be human, yet without sin. He was tired, thirsty, hungry, sad, and tempted. He was subject to it all, but he was subject to it all in order to be our example of what it looks like to live a life in the Spirit as a true human. You want to know what God has for us, the fullness? Of course, I believe that's what is to come in the new heaven and new earth, but it's Jesus. Look at him. He is the... He is the, the the true human par excellence. He is filled with the spirit par excellence. And we often overemphasize his divinity to the point that he isn't human at all, but that's the exact opposite of what the gospels tell us. It is Jesus' spirit-filled humanity that works signs and wonders, that speaks with an authority like no other living person. It is by the power of the spirit that Jesus overcomes the devil and the temptations in the wilderness. Everything that Jesus does in his life and ministry is in the Spirit and by the Spirit. Church, we need to recognize that. And I think we need to recognize that for two important reasons as we think through what it means to be Spirit-filled. First of all, for our protection, our comfort, and our safety. Now, I was talking about charismania a little bit ago. Let me talk about it again because I just love to. Um, Now, I don't think Jesus was normal by any means, uh, but he wasn't weird. You know what I mean when I say that? Like, Jesus wasn't normal. Uh, to be, have the spirit without measure, to do what Jesus did, the mission that Jesus was sent on, of course, he was the divine son of God. He wasn't normal. Jesus wasn't weird. He wasn't. And though I don't think this, the gospels, I know the gospels don't give us an exhaustive account of the life of Jesus, 
it never tells us that he did anything weird. What do I mean by that? Well, he didn't go around barking. He didn't walk up to people and pray in tongues over them. He didn't prophesy and speak words that were unrelated and disconnected from people's needs. Everything he does is relational. Everything he does is purposeful. Everything he does is intentional and powerful. Why do I bring this up? Well, because this fact has grounded me many times. Christianity goes through these spiritual trends. When I was younger, I've mentioned this before, I lived in London, England, and this was at the height of the Toronto blessing, and it took the churches of England by storm. It, everywhere you went to, you could not find a Bible teaching, to sa- Bible teaching church to save your life, but every church was concerned with experiencing the Toronto blessing. And what, what was that? Well... It was being slain in the spirit. It was barking. It was all of these things, just this, just chaos of just erratic behaviors. And now, though I think it's packaged way differently, way cooler, right? There's an emphasis on things like interpreting dreams. There's an emphasis on prophesying over non-Christians, grave-soaking the uh, grave soaking, if you don't know what that means, um, I just watched a video on this. There's a group of people, they go to um, a grave of a great spiritual man or woman, and what they seek to do is to soak up the anointing. They believe, they believe, I'm not saying this like to make fun of, this is just fact. They believe that the Holy Spirit is still hovering over the bones of this person. And there is one story in the Bible that they pull from. But it's still hovering there, and they can soak up that anointing. And so I watched this one video where the guy talks about being at the grave of this guy named Smith Wigglesworth. What a name, right? Uh, He's British, if you didn't guess it. Um, And he talks about soaking up Smith Wigglesworth's spirit. And he talks about how Smith Wigglesworth used to punch demons out of people. And he's like, and you know what? I mean, I don't do that that often, but sometimes somebody has a demon on them or a demon in them, and you just got to punch it out of them. And he says this, total seriousness. And I'm just like, wow, okay. Demon punching, the list of spiritual gifts. Um, grave soaking of Christian leaders to soak up their anointing. And the list goes on of just these things that we hear about that the point is you can't find them in Scripture. How do we know what is the genuine work of the Spirit and what is emotionalism and hype? It seems to me that this is where Jesus and the Scripture must be our guide. We never see Jesus or the apostles doing anything like this. It's it's never modeled or taught to soak the grave of a spiritual leader or to punch a demon out of someone or to bark like a dog. I mean, have you ever thought about this? The apostles never returned to the grave of Jesus to like have an emotional experience. The apostles never go back to Mount Sinai. I mean, there are all of these places. If you've been to Israel, maybe you know about this. There's all these places you can go where God did radical things. And the children of Israel are never taught to like, okay, go to this place because this is where the spirit hovers. Never happens. Never happens. They look back and they remember and they rejoice in that and they're told to be thankful for that, but they're always told told to move forward in what God has. So this idea of going back and, and, you know, experience the spirit that moved at that time, it's just not biblical. In fact, to punch a demon out of someone or to bark like a dog isn't biblical either. 
But the fact is the moving of the Holy Spirit is always in concert with bringing glory to God and building up the church. And Paul says this again and again and again. Let your words be seasoned with salt that they may impart grace to the hearers, that they might build up and encourage, that they might affirm, that they might help. I don't know how barking like a dog helps anyone. I'm going to stop talking about barking, move on. But, you know, I just think through these things, and I think that Jesus, he's this comfort to me. The apostles, the scriptures, this comfort to me. We don't see that. We do see the Spirit helping, serving, healing, and encouraging others. We see the Spirit in the work of salvation drawing people to salvation, and that is the same Spirit that God has given us, and that is the Spirit that we should be pursuing and surrendering to. Secondly, Everything that Jesus does in his life and ministry is, spirit, is by the, in the Spirit and by the Spirit. Secondly, this is important, to see the absolute necessity of the Spirit in the life of the follower of Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus has the Spirit without measure, and it remains on him. It anoints him for his life and ministry. John the Apostle tells us something so I keep saying interesting, but that like doesn't even cover it. It's like mind-blowing. He tells us that Jesus is given, without the, given the spirit without measure, and there at the cross, in Jesus' last moments, all the, all the other writers of the Gospels tell us that Jesus breathes his last. He releases his spirit, but John tells us something different. John tells us that at Jesus' last moment, he releases the spirit. He releases the Holy Spirit, the pneuma. It's released from him. That full anointing that he had from the Father is released or it's given up. And Paul, in Galatians, he picks up on this idea. Listen to Paul's language here. Christ, Jesus, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He's speaking about the cross. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. He did this in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, when Jesus meets the disciples after his resurrection, it says he speaks, peace be with you. And when he says this, he shows them his hands and his side. And then the disciples, it says, were glad when they saw the Lord And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Why do I bring this up? I believe that one of the main purposes in Jesus coming to earth was to be our example of a life lived in the Spirit and by the Spirit. And then to give his life in order that the Spirit might fall upon us. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3. As he dies there on the cross, it is in order that the spirit of God might fall upon the Gentiles, that we might be grafted in, that we might become sons and daughters, we might be anointed with that same spirit of God and share the family likeness, that we might be his spirit-filled people. Now, looking at the life of Jesus, let's wrap this thing up. Looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in his person, How much thought have you given to the person of the Holy Spirit? Or 
how much thought have you given to the Holy Spirit to work and his leading in your life? If you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever realized that everything Jesus did in his earthly life and ministry was under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit? And maybe even this morning, after all of this, and I mean, this isn't the best message I've ever taught. It's probably not the best message you've ever heard. Fair enough. Um, But maybe even after this, you're just like, yeah, I'm not interested. But I would be curious to know in what ways you exchange or substitute the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, Jesus remained faithful to the Father and faithful to the mission he was sent on. He did not compromise with the devil and his offer of greatness. Remember the temptation. It says Jesus is filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he didn't compromise with the devil and his offer of greatness. He did not compromise, it says, with his own desires to fulfill them instead of God the Father's. He did not compromise with the world to give in to the narrative of self-fulfillment, self-sufficiency, and self-promotion, but in every point he was tempted, he submitted to the Father and relied on the Holy Spirit. So I ask again, in what ways are you compromising and substituting the power of the Spirit for your own power or some other power, power to deal with the hardships of life? In what ways are you substituting the life of the Spirit for the life of the world? To be filled with all the fullness of God, if you're not seeking that, what what are you being filled with? What are you hoping in? What sustains you? What drives you? If you're not seeking to be filled by the Spirit, you're looking for it somewhere or in someone else. This was not the way of Jesus. And it is not the way of his followers. The way of Jesus is to cultivate a life in the Spirit. Is to lean into the Spirit. I've had conversations with um, a few of you recently and Sadly, there have been conversations like, hey, I hit a wall, I went through a really hard thing recently, and I leaned into this thing that is, and I'm not going to say what it is, but it's totally not the way of Jesus. It's some, um, I mean, somebody told me they just like, just went and got some marijuana because they just couldn't handle this thing, and they just like smoked a joint, and just like, all right, that's what I needed. And it just left them just feeling awful, miserable, but that's what they sought. Now, I'm not going to talk about medical marijuana. I'm not going to talk about all of this. I'm not going to talk about, like, you know, hemp oil and all that kind of stuff. Whatever, right? But smoking a joint so that I can have some peace and comfort is not the way of Jesus and not the way of the Spirit. We seek comfort and peace from the Father through the Spirit. We seek it in communion and fellowship because of the Holy Spirit. And I think that we are guilty, as the rest of the church globally, of seeking comfort and peace and rest and fulfillment elsewhere than this incredible resource, this incredible person that God has given us in his Holy Spirit. I know I'm guilty of that, and I think we all are, and so what I'm asking us to do today, this morning, is to turn away, to to think about that thing, to think about how I am leaning on, pressing into other things. I'm relying on myself. I'm relying on these other things to supplement me rather than doing what Scripture says, which is to lean into the Holy Spirit. 
which is to ask God when I'm hungry and when I'm thirsty and when I'm needy, spiritually speaking, to, to go to God and to believe that he will bring refreshment, to expect great things from him and to attempt great things for him. That's the pattern that we see in scripture. That's the pattern of God's people. And that's what we call ourselves, followers of Jesus, God's people. And so this is what we're gonna do as we close out our time in singing. Um, We're gonna have a few individuals available in the back. Max and Nikolai will also be back there. And this isn't to pray for you that the Holy Spirit comes upon you per se, like people talk about Pentecostal blessing. But this is, I think, what scripture says. Peter talks about turn, repent, turn around. He says, so that times of refreshment may come from the Holy Spirit. You've been seeking something out. You're identifying with something, someone. You're seeking fulfillment somewhere. And God is asking you, turn from that and turn to me and see what I will do. See how I will answer that heart cry. See how I will minister to you. See how I will fill you with my spirit. And so a few individuals are gonna be available in the back. Uh, If you're uncomfortable doing that, um, you have a relationship with God. Confess your sins. Turn from these things. Lay down whatever is holding you and, and just release that to the Lord. Confess it and ask for a refreshment from his spirit. And as we go on in the next couple weeks, we're going to explore what it means that when we come together, we would practice encouragement, exhortation, prophecy, even tongues, that we would be a a church that would be open to the moving of the Spirit. We would be a church that would come full of the Spirit, ready to minister in the Spirit. So let's pray together. Um, Father, Lord, you're our good Father, Scripture tells us, and you have good things for us. And Jesus, in his great sermon, he tells us, Lord, that when we ask, when we're needy, when we're hungry, Lord, you would not give us a stone. You're a good Father. And so, Lord, he says, when we ask, Lord, you will give us the Spirit. Lord, you will minister to our need with your power, with your person, with your great love. And so, Lord, I pray for this community this morning. Lord, I pray, Lord, if we feel far from you this morning, Lord, if we are far from you, I pray, Lord, that we would return to you. I pray, Lord, if we feel abandoned, if we feel forsaken, if we feel under condemnation, Lord, that we would experience anew the love of God spread about in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That we would know that we are loved, cherished, wanted. That we're part of the family. I pray, Lord, since we are part of the family, Lord, that we would bring our needs before you, Lord. We are hungry and thirsty children, and we have a father with a grand festive table. And so, Lord, would we receive from you
Lord, maybe even thoughts now just creep into our hearts where we're not worthy to receive. Lord, we've gone astray. We've sought after other things. But we know that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. The true son. And it says, Lord, by faith, by allegiance, we are in him. And we're clean. And we receive everything that you have from, for us in him. And so, Lord, we look to Jesus, we look to the cross, we look to the lamb who was slain, and that is our covering. And so we come, as Hebrews says, boldly before your throne of grace for help, for strength, for power, for peace, for fulfillment, to be filled with the Spirit. And Lord, we're asking that you would do something fresh and new in us communally, in us individually, beginning today, Lord. So we offer up our lives to you, Lord. We're not telling you to do anything. We're simply asking you to do according to your word, according to your grace for us.